Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in today. I believe that God's gonna use his word once again to encourage your heart in a special way. If you wanna know more about Shelter Cove, check us out at sheltercovelive.com. But again, I pray that God uses this message to encourage your heart in a special way today. Hey everybody, happy new year. Pastor Ed here in the studios deep in the heart of Shelter Cove. Uh, James is with me. He's going to be firing some questions whenever he uh, gets one that he thinks is germane to our points. And uh, Chance is back there running something and Apollo's on the board. Uh, we're just really having quite a good time. Um, it is a different format. Uh, we are uh, beginning the more than a game motif, our series, uh, five different weeks centering around famous board games. Today is the game of life. We have our lovely uh, box, our board, the spinner thing, which I love doing. I don't know why I like that. Uh, the cars that Chance set up with all the people in them, with the little kids. If you've never played the game before, you start out at the very beginning, um, and there's all sorts of different pathways that you choose uh, which one to take. One of the things about the game of life that is very much like real life is there's no going backwards. Uh, you just keep on going forward until the end. Uh, you can't go back and rethink or rechange any of your choices. And uh, that's kind of like the Philippians 3 model, right? Uh, Philippians 3, 10 through 14, where Paul says, uh, Hey, I forget what is behind me, and I press forward, press on, uh, forward toward the call that Jesus Christ is calling me toward heaven. And uh, I'm sure Paul had some regrets, and I know I have had We've talked to behind the scenes. So we have all had different regrets that we uh, have made in our choices and all those kind of things. In some cases, those regrets uh, make you unhappy. But what I've learned is it's never too late to start making better decisions and redirecting your life. Unlike the board game that has a, a track you have to follow, you know, uh, life can take you anywhere that God guides, uh, obviously through His grace. Long time ago, J.O. asked me to write out and do a sermon, in fact, on the concept of the five top things that I've learned from life. Now, I'm 60 years old, be 61 in May. I'm kind of the oldest guy around here, uh, here on the staff. Uh, and I've spent 37 years as a pastor, most of it being an executive pastor. So I've learned some things um, from trial and error, uh, learned some things from wisdom that others have given me that were certainly wiser than I, and I've learned some things through life experiences. Um, I think we gain lots of knowledge and understanding from life itself and the game of life. In my background, uh, my mom was divorced five times before I was 18. Uh, my dad uh, divorced, my real dad, dad divorced her uh, when I was two. Uh, my dad was a multimillionaire in the area of radio. He bought and sold radio stations. And he was a high-functioning, executive, cocktail party type of alcoholic his entire life um, up until the end. Uh, for me, I became a youth pastor very early on and uh, became a full-time youth guy even after the part-time uh, gigs that I'd had in 1986. Uh, and I started really getting involved with police officers. One of my best friends was a police officer at the time. And I started being a chaplain for Bakersfield SWAT Narcotics and then later on with the FBI, which I still do today. In fact, I'm going back to D.C. in April to teach a class for said FBI agents on stress from the Christian perspective. Amazing, they want to know that stuff. 
And then, of course, being an executive pastor since 1996, um, you know, I've, I've dealt with lots of different staff people, lots of different family life things and issues. Uh, obviously, a church um, of any size goes through quite a bit of different things. So through those and many more experiences, uh, I've kind of honed down the top five things that I've learned about life, the, the Christian life that I've led. Before I state my top five, however, I've got some honorable mentions that I'd like to throw at you. Honorable mention, uh, mention number one is popularity is fickle. You'd know all about this one, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing out of you either. I've said it the last two services. It's still funny. It's still <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it is true. Popularity comes and goes. Just ask Millie Vanilli. Look that one up. Um, you know, Jesus came uh, on a donkey, right? Uh, Passion Week and uh, adoring crowds, you know, the whole palm thing on the cult. Um, one week later, though, the tune changed, right? Uh, same people were yelling, crucify him. You know, folks, um, popularity comes and goes. Ask George Bush the first, who in January of 1991 had a 91% approval rating only to lose the election in 92. You know, popularity is fleeting. Uh, one of my life verses is 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. It says, quote, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court, for my conscience is clear. I don't even judge myself. The Lord Jesus, he is my judge. And I think Paul is trying to tell the Corinthian church, which was completely fouled up, by the way, um, that he wasn't really looking for anything um, uh, about fame and fortune or people's approval. He was just trying to do what's right in God's eyes. And I think that's a good one. But that's an honorable mention. Another one is this. I get this from parenting. It says this, quote, consistency covers a multitude of sin, unquote. In parenting, if you consistently invest time with your children, you'll be better off. If you consistently create traditions, your kids, your family will be better off. If you consistently discipline in righteousness with grace and justice in mind, you will be better off. Never, ever be a threatening, repeating parent. Always, if you speak, make your word the standard. Consistency fixes lots of different things. Uh, another honorable mention is this one. Uh, you can't fix what you don't know. Folks, we all have blind spots, right? Everybody. And so the point here is I need people to be able to approach me and tell me exactly what's going on so I can do something about it. For that to happen, I have to have people around me that are honest and transparent and are loyal uh, to tell me what sometimes I don't want to hear. Uh, you'd be amazed at how many different things um, come through my desk. But you know what? I want to hear all of it uh, because I can't fix what I don't know. So those are just some honorable mentions of things that matter uh, in life. So make sure that you center some people around you that are really quality, honest folks. The five things in no particular order that I've learned that I wrote about uh, way back when and I'm now presenting to you uh, go like this. Number one, decisions matter. Uh, Acts 5, 1 uh, to 10 is a perfect example of decisions making a big difference. I'm going to read that. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn on over there. 
Acts 5, 1 to 10. And it says this, this is the Ananias and Sapphira story. Uh, you may be very familiar with it. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. You know, the disciples had been collecting property, selling them, and gathering the money together to help the needy in their midst. And that's the, the background there. Verse 2, with his wife's full knowledge, he here's his first decision, he kept back, in my Bible it's underlined, part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. He made a decision to keep part of it for himself, even though he told the disciples this was for all the people and it was the full price. Verse 3, then Peter Ananias says, uh, Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You ever notice that decisions caused, bad decisions for sure, are caused by bad thinking? Bad decisions normally don't just pop up. They typically are uh, crept on by other things that, well, that we make bad decisions on. And it gives us the fodder in order to make the big bad decision. In this particular case, um, Peter is saying, listen, uh, verse 7, he says, uh, or no, verse 4, you have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard and had happened, who had heard what had happened there. I'll bet they w were fearful. Probably a lot of them had the same kinds of issues, and they're thinking, oh my, I wonder if that's going to happen to me. Verse 6, then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? She had a decision to make, a decision to tell the truth, or a decision to go with the plot they'd set back in verse 1. She says, yes, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband and are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear, verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Folks, <clears throat> yeah, I'll bet great fear hit the whole church because lots of times we tell a fib to the Lord. We say one thing and we do another and decisions matter. You and I, when we make decisions about big things, had better seek God's will. If we don't, then we tend to be like Ananias Sapphira, making snap judgments that often end up with bad results. Yes, decisions matter because God's will matters. A long time ago, a professor, in fact, it was the Book of Acts. I was taking a class on the Book of Acts. His name was Dr. John Sheets. I'll never forget it. He said, there are five steps to finding God's will with most decisions. And here they are. Number one, he said, 
you and I have to approach all decisions in an attitude, a motif of prayer. So the first thing you do to find God's will as a decision point is to make sure you pray fervently for whatever the issue is. Now, I'm not talking about a little nighttime prayer at the end. and I'm not talking about a little devotional prayer that you might do with the daily bread or something. I'm talking about fervent, effective prayer, because that's what happens. When a person has fervent prayer, it avails much, according to Scripture. And so from my perspective, first thing you do, when you find a big decision in front of you, you start praying about it. Uh, J.O. and I have prayed over different decisions many times together. Um, and, and committed for a month or more to pray on some topic line. And all I'm saying is that if you're going to try to find God's will, and if decisions do matter, which they do, then it starts with a dedication to prayer. Do you think there's maybe a link there to uh, James 1, where we're talking about asking for wisdom? Is that what we're doing when we're praying? Are we asking for the wisdom in that decision? Or are we just praying? What specifically am I praying for, I guess? Well, I, I, I think, James, um, and in this format, that's great. Ask questions away. Uh, I think it all depends on the situation. But I think what you mentioned is correct. If there's one thing that the Bible seems to repeat is this uh, encouragement for believers to ask for wisdom. And when we ask for wisdom, ostensibly, according to Scripture, it is given. How is it given? It could come from a person. It could come from the circumstance changing. It could come from a peaceful sense. Or it could come from a call that God is laying on your heart, to use the Christian term, to do something in particular. Who knows? But the bottom line is, whatever it is, the bottom line is, if you've got a decision to make, you'd better be on your knees. You know what I mean? Otherwise, I mean, you're, you're kind of shooting from the hip, right? I mean, if you're going to seek God's will, and sometimes I think people just say that, and they just want to do whatever they want to do. You know, a lot of people come to a pastor and tell them a story or whatever, and they're just looking for me to confirm their decision. And, and I don't mean in the right way, but in a, they want me to affirm that they, it's okay. Well, in my opinion, God's will is first found in the bathing of prayer. Secondly, uh, John Sheets said, Read your scripture. Search the scripture. The scripture has lots of things to say, my friends, about lots of topics. Whether it's a direct statement or a first-line deduction or a second-line deduction, you can gather all sorts of wisdom from the text. And then not only pray and read, but number three is ask five people that are older and wiser than you. The reason why I ask an older person, is because they've been through where I'm at. I, all my life, I've asked somebody who's 10 years plus older than me. And before James says it, I know I'm running out of options. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I said nothing of the yeah, sort. <laughs> you thought it, or, or Chance did back there. Um, anyway, the point being is when I uh, want to call one of my five top guys, I call my first call is to a guy by the name of Bill Berdoon, who's in his mid-70s. He lives in Vero Beach, Florida, and he happened to run American Express <laughs> for the state of New Jersey. I mean, the entire thing. Uh, very sharp guy and is a solid believer. Um, you asked that in one of the sessions, um, or somebody did, um, uh, texting in. Um, 
but it's my opinion that you do have to have somebody who is also spirit-led. It's not that people who are, can't have some wisdom approach, pragmatically especially, but I want a, a deeper thing than that. I want not only intelligent, smart people around me, but I also want someone who has the wisdom of living with the Lord for a long time. So if those five people start saying the same kinds of things and you start getting consensus about whatever the decision is to move, take that job, get married, whatever, the, the point being is that I think you start seeing as God's Spirit speaks to you from other people, which is all over the Bible, lots of places. So uh, pray, read, ask. Pray, read, ask. And then number four is watch. Um, after you start doing these kinds of things, you start looking for how God is opening or closing. That's usually my prayers. I'd like him to close a door uh, uh, around you. And you start watching and seeing the providential work of God because decisions matter. And I'm looking for God's leading, right? So I'm, I'm praying. I'm searching the scripture. I'm talking with good godly counsel. And now I'm watching for God's movement. And then number four, or five rather, the last one is the hardest one for Americans in particular, and it certainly is for me because I'm not necessarily a very patient person, but it's throughout the Bible, and it's this. Number five is to wait. Wait for what? Wait on the Lord to make a way. My friends, we are so used to the 22-minute sitcom mentality where we have five, six minutes of introduction of a problem, 12, 13 minutes of the solution of the problem and a couple minutes to conclude where everybody's happy. But life isn't like that, is it? Life many times has lots, lots of cross currents. And so the hardest thing, but the biblical thing is this, wait on the Lord until you are confirmed in your spirit that you know Jesus's mind on the matter and then act with confidence. That's the five steps. Very simple. Pray, read, ask, watch, and wait. Spirit-led really matters. And I want you to understand this. And, and I've tell, told my staff, these guys in here could tell you this. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, being spirit-led is what matters most in much of life. And the way you're spirit-led is by being connected with the Lord on a regular basis, or as my wife says, on the regular. Because as far as I'm concerned, there are no shortcuts to being connected with God. It's not possible. You need to be able to walk and pray, listen and meditate. All those things are important, but there's no shortcut to the issue of time. You have to have time with the Lord. So the first thing I've learned in life is that decisions matter and I want godly decisions. Second thing is found in Psalm uh, 119, uh, 103 uh, and following. It's a very famous uh, scripture. Let me turn to it. For those of you taking notes, it's 103 through 106. And theology matters. That's the second point. Uh, theology gets a bad rap. A lot of people think it's boring or stale, but really all theology is is the study of God. Now, if we believe in the meta-narrative, which I do, that God created and we are creations, then as creators, <clears throat> God can do, you know, through the three 
person of the Holy Spirit can, can well, find real, um, what's the word, satisfaction in the relationship between the Godhead. But for you and I, as creation, um, things that are, have uh, been created, we have to get connected to the Lord. And one of the ways we do that is by studying who he is. Not only uh, in the Romans 1 motif of the natural theology of the world, but also through the special uh, revelation of Scripture. And as far as I'm concerned, God is worth studying. And, and the reason why I think most people have trouble with theology is that they just don't understand the, the scary word. We were talking about that last service. The scary word. All it means is study, ology, theos of God. It's no different than study of bios, life, or study of anthro, man, study of man, anthropology, biology, theology. There's nothing to be fearful of. All it means is you start where you're at and you start understanding and developing understanding of what God and who God is. In Psalm 103, 119, 103, it says this. Now, just catch the passion of the word. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Talk about wisdom and living, right? Verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. It's a light for my path in life. It's following the word as it shows your path. And by the way, in Israel, uh, they didn't have street lamps. And you know, you always see in these stupid movies where they got the lantern right next to their eyes and they're looking through the dark. <laughs> Go ahead and turn out the lights, put something really bright right here and see how much you see. You don't see anything. Back then, uh, they put a lamp, which of course would be a candle or wax, at the, on a plate that was held by some chains that went up on a little pole and the light was down by your feet. And so when you went through the pathway where there's lots of scorpions and snakes and, and pitfalls, the light was literally at your feet. And you couldn't quite see in front of you too far, but you could see where your next step was. And God never promises that you'll be able to see f way out in the future. He does say, if you follow my scripture, your word is a light to my feet and a light for my path as you go. And it avoids a lot of danger. As Benjamin Franklin once said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Well, the scripture, knowing it, stops you from lousy decisions because decisions matter, but so does theology. And he says this in verse uh, 106, I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. Folks, theology, uh, it's super important to know who God is and what he wants in your life. I don't see how you get to know what he wants unless you don't do some sort of study. And I think the big issue in America right now, throughout churches all over the country, is the concept of inspiration and inerrancy of scripture. I think it all comes down to that. It affects all your decisions. How you see what the scripture says makes all the difference in what you decide and believe up here. It's the owner's manual. As A.W. Tozer said, however you view God, through your study, obviously, 
but through your own conscience as well. However you view God, that is how you'll behave. A.W. Tozer. And by the way, he never had a theological degree. One of the greatest writers of the 50s and 60s. Bad theology leads to bad thinking. Bad thinking leads to bad living. The battle is in the mind, and bad living leads to more bad decisions, and it becomes a cycle. Uh, if, uh, last time we were talking about uh, how to start in theology. Let me just give you a, a recommendation. Go on Amazon or wh whatever your platforms are. Find the book Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem, G-R-U-D-E-M. Every Christian should have that book in their library. It can be used as a reference book or you can just start in one area. Systematic Theology, all it says is Angeology, study of angels. Christology, study of Christ. Pateriology, the study of the Father. Hamartiology, the study of sin, etc. And you start learning what those things are in a systematic way and it condenses all the scriptures and puts it in one volume. It's about that thick. Wayne Grudem, one of the better writers in uh, Christendom. Um, so I have a challenge for you under this heading. It's this. I challenge you to renew your love of learning about God in 2021. You don't need me for that. You can do that on your own. I'm always haunted a bit by Revelation 2.4 where Jesus tells this seemingly terrific church. He says, you, I have one thing against you. You have lost your love, your first love. You know, have you ever wondered at life at certain times when you reflect and end of years or time when you reflect, beginning of years, times when you reflect, um, that God just isn't what he used to be to you? where he seems stale. Why is that? I can tell you why. It's because you've stopped learning about him. You think you've learned it all. You think you know it all. And we can get complacent and we can get busy. And I think God gets squeezed out. To quote Bob Newhart in a famous mad TV clip, and you can look that up yourself, Stop, new word, it. Stop it. Folks, you and I have got to show not only this dying world that God is, in fact, living in you, but also that he's the center of your affection. And you and I will so much get better at life if we have him at the center as we learn. One easy way around here for theology, go to Growth Track. It's going to be open here online in, in 2021. And then go to Pathway, whether it's physical or on the online version. Go to Pathway. Learn some theology. Learn some understandable things that will help you really, really, really engage the Lord and his church. Decisions matter. Theology matters. Another thing I've learned in life is that forgiveness matters. That's number three. Forgiveness matters. In Matthew 18, Peter comes to Jesus and he says, Hey, do I need to forgive my neighbor seven times? Is that right? And Jesus says, not seven times, 70 times seven. 
Now he's not saying 490 times and, and you're good. On 491, you can start hating the guy. That's not what it says. He's making the concept, euphemistically speaking, that forgiveness is an unyielding, unlimited uh, a volume that you can give just like God has done to you and I. Later on in that particular text in Matthew 18, very famous, he shows about a king who brings somebody who owes very little before him and says, hey, you owe me. And the guy says, hey, I've had this, I've had that. I don't have the money. And the king says, be forgiven. Go, the debt has been given away. Guy leaves the king's palace and he sees a friend of his walk across the street and he says, hey, that guy owes me even smaller amount, say a dollar or two. And he goes to him and says, hey, where's my dollar? And the guy says, I don't have it. And he calls the authorities and that guy is put in jail because of the debt. Well, the king hears of it and he brings that original guy back. He says, what in the world are you doing? And of course, the king's very mad and justice prevails. James and I were just talking about this earlier. How much has God forgiven us? If we were to write down all the things, all the words, all the actions, all the attitudes, all the thoughts, all the stupidity. Now, he's only 29. I'm 60. I'm twice his age. I still don't got enough paper for all of mine. I don't know what we're going to do for yours. <laughs> Ooh, ooh, ooh. That brought some chuckles from the gallery. I know. The cheap seats even laughed at that one. That was really good. Um, we have fun here, folks. But it's true. Where are we going to get all the paper to write down all the things? You know, when the judgment seat happens, beam a seat or not, the sins are, are, are revealed. And the payment's made by the advocate, Jesus. But, folks... Jesus has forgiven us of a lot. Don't you think we should be grateful for the forgiveness we've been given and be very quick to forgive others? Unforgiveness is a cancer. Do not let it ruin your life. The release that comes from forgiving someone, even though they don't even know it, kind of like Jesus on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. None of those people repented. They all went about their business, but Jesus was ready to forgive. And that's the, our attitude here because that release of forgiveness brings peace and centeredness in your life. However God treats you, I think we should treat others, right? And God's forgiven us a lot. Um, Charles Sundahl wrote about this one time, and I heard him speak about it too, that forgiving is a choice that we make. Forgetting about the offense, that's another story. Only time and the supernatural power of the Spirit can help us forgive. And I think I agree with that. You know, uh, my father, uh, probably the most intelligent person I've ever met, millionaire. Um, he bought and sold radio stations, managed many others, uh, was in radio his entire life, in CBS radio, um, Viacom, others. Um, but he was a high-functioning alcoholic in the cocktail party sort of way. And one day, when I was 14 years old, um, I, I had to spend my time with my father, who left our family when I was two, 
uh, when I was 14, I spent some time over the, in his town that he was at, that he owned a couple of radio stations at in Spokane. And um, he would come home every night drunk as anybody could ever be. Slur, couldn't, couldn't, didn't recognize anybody. He was just crazy drunk. Two, three, four in the morning. I used to put shoes, his shoes, in front of the door so he would stumble so I'd know he was there because I was that afraid of him at the time. Well, one night he came home. He was so blitzed. Uh, he called me by his girlfriend's name. He woke me up and he tried to kiss me. Now, I took him by the lapels and I threw him over a couch. The couch went flipping over and he went into a wall. And I ran out into a city alone at 14 and I spent the night out there. I don't remember where I went, actually. But the point was, he didn't even know. The next day I was walking to work. I worked at his station, my first job, KXXR Radio. Um, and he stopped and said, hey, are you still mad at me? I go, you don't even know what you did, do you, did you? He goes, no, what, what? And I never did tell him because I thought it hurt him too badly. When I was 26, he called me, um, madder and a hornet about something. Uh, late at night, he's drunk. Uh, we just had our first child, Sarah. And um, I said, Dad, don't, don't call me anymore when you're drunk. I just can't handle it. So I hung up. But then I asked myself, and I realized I had a kind of a pivotal moment, a Kairos moment, as a friend of mine used to say. And I realized I had not forgiven my father, not for leaving my family, not ever for keeping any of his promises, which he never did. He'd always promise and never fulfill. Nor for that night, that fateful night in Spokane, uh, some 12 years before. And I got it down on my knees, kitchen, um, at, in fact, I remember the address, 34313 Southwest 43rd in Auburn, Washington, and I forgave my father. Folks, forgiveness releases you. It, it takes away uh, the bitterness that can so easily erode your life. You know, it's been Christmas, right? Um, one of the movies that many people watch at Christmas time is the old Home Alone movie. Uh, I happened to watch it myself. Uh, I think I was on an airplane, actually. And um, in that movie, at the very end, uh, you find an old man that lives next door. Uh, he's a scary old guy. At night, he you know, shovels the snow with that big snow shovel of his, and everybody's afraid of him. And in the movie, Kevin tells the old man that he needs to call his, well, his exiled um, family who hadn't talked to him in years for something that had happened and ask for forgiveness. And at the end of the film, at the very last clip or so, it shows the old man gathering up his grandchild because he did, in fact, call and make amends to that daughter and son. And it shows them coming there for Christmas to Grandpa's house. And their eyes lock eyes. And Kevin smiles. It's one of the best parts of that movie. Folks, the old man, he tries to make amends and it changes who he is. You can see it on screen. And that's what forgiveness has the power to do. And that's one reason why I think God calls all of us as Christians to be quick to forgive. Decisions matter. Theology certainly matters. Good, solid theology. And forgiveness, it matters. Fourthly, others matter. In Philippians 2, verse 3, uh, Paul makes this crazy statement. 
it's something that is a command. It's in, in the imperative in the Greek. Um, and it says this. Let me just read it to you. Two, three. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Number four, others matter. When you become a Christian, all of a sudden, it's no longer about being narcissistic or self-centered about us. And the Bible clearly says that you and I love each other. (laughs) That's a command. But it also assumes that you already love yourself plenty. In fact, most of us too much. And he's warning us, do nothing out of selfish ambition. In fact, we are to be looking out for others, not only in the practical realm, but also in the area of whether or not they're going to spend eternity in hell. There's clearly um, a connection between being concerned with others and being willing to share your faith. Others matter. Jesus said, hey, if you want to be the greatest in God's kingdom, be the servant of all. Others. Be servant of others. Um, Rights. Some people say, well, I've got rights. Forget your rights. Get out of the American craziness. Forget the, the rights part. Understand that you're a citizen of heaven and therefore your rights are put away so that you can, in fact, reach out to others. Just like Jesus says in another place in Philippians where he says he put away his, his right to do this in order that he would lower himself in order to reach us. Well, that's kind of the same thing that we're supposed to do with other people. Our neighbors, co-workers, schoolmates, people in our own church, people in our own community, our bridge clubs, our tennis clubs, our pickleball clubs, which, by the way, I like quite a bit around here. It's really important. I just got back from South Carolina um, about four or five days ago, and uh, on the plane, um, I read a book. A former staff member of mine, a teaching pastor at a church, uh, his name is Pat Linnell, he wrote a book called Grace Bomb, and he sent it to me uh, for me to read it, see what I thought of it, and see if I would endorse it through David C. Cook. I've been talking to the publisher uh, of what I would say about his book. Folks, I couldn't put that book down. It was ridiculously well written, and the point was so much other-centered. The book is called Grace Bomb by Pat Linnell, L-I-N-N-E-L-L, I think. It's on Amazon. I think you can pre-order it. I know that I'm going to get uh, one. I think I'm going to use it, in fact, this summer for some of our stuff around here, for not only our staff, but maybe even our our new um, visitors. Grace Bomb is all about this. You look around to find others in need, and you go and meet that need, leaving a card anonymously or uh, personally, and that card says something to the effect, you've been grace bombed, just like Jesus grace bombs us with so many different things. And there's a little link to a website, and the idea is for them to go to that website, and they'll not only find out about Shelter Cove, but they would find out about um, how to turn their life over to Christ and why we do what we do as Christians. You know, they'll know us by our love, and it can't be just words. It has to have action to it. So this whole grace bomb, I'm hoping to bring Pat out in the summer. Uh, we tried to do that last summer, and, 
And for whatever reasons, the, the COVID thing really stopped that. I can't imagine. You mean to say that COVID was an inconvenience this past I year? No, it's, it's so annoying. But I'm hoping that we will get a good look at Grace Bomb as a motif of life. Because if there's one thing that I've learned that really is important, others matter. When it all becomes about you, about me, we get very myopic and in, inward bound. You can even be somebody who just becomes a, a student of the Bible and all you do is study the Bible and never touch anybody. That's not right. That's not what the Bible represents. It's not what it says. So, decisions matter. Theology matters. Forgiveness matters. Others matter. And finally, the end matters. Folks, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12, at the end of his book, the wisest man to have walked the face of the earth besides Jesus, Solomon writes these words. The end of the matter, all has been heard. This is it. Fear God and keep his commandments. There's one thing that I've learned that matters is the end. You know, I'm 60 some odd years old. These guys are in their 20s, early 30s. Um, I'm closer to eternity than, than these guys. But sooner or later, we're all going to face eternity. And the end, what will matter as you reflect back on your dying days, it will be whether or not you've feared God, given respect, put him first and foremost, centered him in your world, and whether or not you've kept his commandments well. And that he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. Solomon says at the end of this verse, he says, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the end of it. For this is the whole duty of man. You know what, you know what life's about? Fearing God, keeping his commandments. Verse 14 in that same chapter, he says, for God will bring every deed into judgment and with every secret thing, whether good or evil, will be shown. There's a famous song, I Did It My Way. Frank Sinatra did it. Elvis Presley did it. It's a beautiful song. Um, in it, one of the words says, regrets, I've had a few. Now, I did it my way seems a little short-sighted to me. The words, I did it my way? Hmm. It should be from the Christian perspective, I did it his way. My way doesn't matter. It's his way. Fear God. Keep his commands, his commands. And then know that for us to have any of this, we have to have a clean relationship with the Lord. End of 2020, beginning of 2021, I would love for you sometime tonight, if you haven't already, if you've got things that you need to repent, that is turn from, and you need to restore a relationship or two, or a hundred. Or if you need to restitute someone for the wrong you've done in your life, then you kneel before the Lord and you get it right with the Lord first. First John 1, 9. He is faithful and just to forgive you if you confess your sin. He'll do it. Folks, 2021 is here. The game of life is upon you and it's not a board game. It's more than a game. 
And you and I have to get ourselves clean so that there's nothing before or between you and God. And I don't know any other way to do that except to find your prayer closet, find, go for a walk, kneel in your bedroom, and just ask the Lord what he wants in your life. Because decisions matter, theology matters, forgiveness matters, others matter, and fearing God matters. It really does. Happy New Year, and may you walk with your head up high because you know the purpose of your life, centering God in it. God bless.